It is very cold outside. It has been snowing here in Flagstaff, Arizona. The temperatures are in the 30s. Winter is coming. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Blinded by Sports on the Canon on the Cannon Clark podcast. I am your host, the Cannon Clark himself, Sean Clark. I am joined by a great co-host, Colin Fuchs. Colin, how are we doing down there in warmer Orlando, Florida? Sean, you know, out in Flagstaff, the weather outside is frightful, but the sports are so delightful. That's right. We're back with the sports. I know. That's what we're here for. I, I hope you like that turn of phrase. Uh, you know, we're, we're getting hit by the little edges of the Hurricane Ada out here. Uh, doing all right, just getting a bunch of rain and then sunshine and, you know, all the weather in between. But we're doing we're doing fantastic. Winter hasn't come quite yet. It's a it's a nice warm 79 degrees in middle of November. <laughs> Colin with the rhyming to start. All right. I love to see it. All right. Let's get into it. So obviously got to start in England with the Premier League because that's what we always do. So we're going to do something a little bit different as we head into the international break and we'll discuss a particular match during the international break later. Well, let's just do a, let's just do a uh, reaction segment. So, so let's take a look at the premier league top four as we head into this international break. So I'm just going to, just going to list off the four teams and then Colin get your reaction to this. So at the top of the table is Leicester city. Yes. The same club that was in the top three most of the season last season then epically tanked during project restart and missed the champions league they are currently at the top of the table even though Aunt ben showell is gone tottenham is number two which is making collins preseason prediction look really good right now although gareth bale is now injured shocker <laughs> shocker indeed uh the third team in the in the table is liverpool shocker there in the top four Although they haven't looked quite as great as last year for a very obvious reason, they are still third. And fourth is, wait, 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 wait a minute, Southampton. Oh, so just a, so that's only two of the of the traditional six of the Premier League are not in this top four. Arsenal, well, they're terrible, so obviously they're not. Chelsea, not quite up there yet, although they're fifth. And both Manchester's are not up there. I did not say Manchester clubs. So, Colin, what's your reaction to this? Uh, to say, obviously, seeing Southampton up there is shocking, to say the least. Uh, I don't think you or I would have said that Southampton was at least in the top six. Was it, They weren't qualifying to, for a Europa spot, to say the least. Uh, Liverpool being top three is not shocking. They kept a lot of their, their same roster, and they've made some key additions in Diego Jota. Um, Obviously, Tottenham being number two, I would say that was probably the most shocking out of all of it. Uh, maybe even Leicester being number one. Uh, but Leicester, obviously, like you mentioned, top three almost the entire season. Then Project Restart happened and then, you know, fell to their untimely demise. Uh, but you look at what they've done in their last five, 3-0-2. Oh, Jamie Vardy currently tied for first in the Golden Boot race along with Calvert-Lewin, Sung Hyun Min, and Mohamed Salah. Uh, but what this has changed about this club is the fact that in even previous seasons, it seemed that when it, they would be ahead, it was because, you know, Vardy got two or three goals um, and it, it would be maybe like a three, one win, things like that. 
Leicester is now finding themselves forced into more position where they're having to grind out wins and they're actually doing it to some success, obviously. Like I mentioned, 3 0 and 2. Um, not great, but they, they're looking a little better. And what we mentioned previously when we were doing our uh, season preview of the Premier League is we were worried about Leicester's you know, defense, especially after Ben Chilwell left. And with good reason, because obviously we saw their first two matches, they conceded plenty. But they've kind of tended to step up a little bit more. They look a little bit more cohesive now. They're only doing three in the back, and they're relying more on that midfield presence, which they're definitely getting. And I think what I like about Leicester is they have a solid depth. I mean, you look at the bench that they had against Leeds United. Obviously, they had uh, Vardy come on, Vardy come on. But then you look at they had uh, James Madison, they had Ian Nacho, and then Chowdhury on it. Um, and so this is, I think, a team that has some underrated depth with it, which is like going to obviously, especially in the Premier League, now that you're back to a regular season, and this is the only league that has changed the policy on the substitution rule from COVID of the five subs, they're back to doing three again. And uh, Jurgen Klopp has definitely criticized, you know, the Premier League ownership, just saying that's, yeah, ridiculous. They, they, and we're seeing the injuries to back that up. Obviously, we've seen James Rodriguez, who had a minor injury. So we think uh, we've obviously seen Gareth Bale now go out again. So more injuries are just going to continue to happen. Uh, Tottenham are you know, four, one and oh, in their last five, you're looking at Liverpool being two, two and one, not convincing there. Let's talk Southampton though. Four, one and oh, just like Tottenham, you know, no losses in their last five. However, their defense does tend to be all over the place. They're either going to have a shutout on you and, you know, keep a clean sheet, or they're going to allow multiple goals past you and have to leave, you know, you on the edge of your seat like they did. Um, in that four three in four three victory over Aston Villa, I believe it was. Who knows? Uh, but obviously Theo Walcott has seen his fair share of Premier League clubs in his time, and he seems to finally be finding his stride here. I know you're crying right now, Sean. Uh, probably has scored one of the most beautiful goals for Arsenal, at least individually. You know when he slides on his knees in the 18 and stays alive for the play and ends up burying it anyways. Fantastic goal. Um, but he seems to be finding his stride, especially with Southampton. Che Adams, obviously a great goal scorer himself. But one thing that they've been able to do so well is in their midfield, they've been able to dictate the games themselves. They dictate, dictate the matches. Um, but the biggest thing that they need to figure out here soon is they seem to struggle against clubs that tend to higher press you, that seem to force you to chase after the ball because in their last matchup that was 2-0, they weren't really under any pressure from Newcastle. They're not going to give you that high press. So they had almost 70% possession that entire match, which is ridiculous. Um, but then you go up against the teams like a Leeds United, you go up against a Liverpool, like a Man City that's going to press you. They're going to struggle against a club like that. But congrats to Southampton who have not only were they leading the top of the league because they had the first match of the day for the first time since 1988, but just the fact that they find themselves in the top four after eight matches played, congrats to them. Southampton has been exciting to watch this season, to say the least. They, yeah, they beat Austin Villa four to three, and they were up four nothing. So Austin Villa came back and made that an incredible match. Uh, two of those goals were from were from a set piece. Uh, Yannick Vestergaard and James Ward-Prowse all scored on free kicks. They have they have great goal scoring ability across their midfield and their front line. So they have a lot of different scoring options. Che Adams scored the winning goal in their two nil win over Newcastle United, which is 
a solid win because Newcastle United has been a solid club this season. They sit in the middle of the table and Callum Wilson has been a legit score and they kept him off the score sheet. So Southampton being number four is very surprising. Tottenham, if you think about it, they have basically been nearly perfect outside from, you know, blowing a three nil lead to West Ham as Manuel Lanzini hit one of the most insane volleys of all time. I, I, yeah, chef's kiss indeed. Liverpool, third, not surprising. How about Diogo Yoda? Three goals so far in Premier League play this season, including four other goals in Champions League group stage play. So he has been a sensational player. And I got a feeling that Roberto Firmino is going to get sold at some point. He has not been as productive for the club in the past year. And Yoda has really taken his place on, on the front line uh, alongside Sadio Mane and, and Mohamed Salah. So that's a very good revelation for Liverpool. And last but not least, Leicester City. They have been beating good clubs this season. They beat Leeds United 4-1, to which Leeds United is no pushover, as they have proven this season. Patrick Bamford has been an absolute stud. They beat Man City early in the season 5-2. to 5-2. to and this past weekend, they beat Wolverhampton, a club that has a tremendous attack, 1-0. They shut them out. Jimmy Vardy scored the winning goal on a penalty kick in the 17th minute. The, the thing I like about Leicester is that they're not as dependent on, on, on Vardy to, to score. Yes, he has been their leading goal scorer by far, but they have other playmakers. Madison has really stepped up this season. And, and Jordi Tielemans has been more of a playmaker this season than he was last season. So Leicester has really stepped up. And as long as they can get other creative options, they should be fine to stay in the top four this season. Yeah, they, they definitely look comfortable in that top four. But going back to Liverpool really quick, I just want to know, I'm going to touch on this before we move on, but Jurgen Klopp, what are you thinking putting Roberto Firmino in a, in a center attacking midfield role? That's not where he's meant to play. I get Mohamed Salah up top because he's been your best goal scorer, but Diego Jota is obviously much better. You And you have Jordan Shakiri on your bench, who's more of a traditional midfielder, even attacking midfield. So I, I didn't understand that move there, but obviously, you know, I'm not an international manager, so... <laughs> Yeah, that makes as much sense as putting a pyramid of bombing on the wing and having Alexandre Lancaster the striker. That that that's also completely dumb too. <clears throat> well, that would never happen. Oh yeah. Oh wait, they do do that. Anyways, it's a topic for another time. All right, moving on. Kind of skipping across the pond, in a way, because we're also partly staying in Europe too. So the U.S. men's national team is about to play their first match since COVID happened all the way back in March. Wow, that was eight months ago. Crazy. Yeah, it was It was starting tomorrow. It was eight months ago that all this madness started breaking out, which is insane how time has flown since then. But yeah, the U.S. men's national team is back, and they're going to play an international friendly against Wales. Colin, the U.S. men's national team expert, how do you see this match going? This is first off, just having the men's national team, you know, finally back in action, being able to watch them play again is fantastic. Uh, and we're finally going to get to see this new identity of Greg Burhalter and what he has to put forth with this club, uh, simply because of the fact there's no MLS players in it, simply because he respects the 
the MLS playoffs. He respects all uh, what the coaches need and what the players meant to them. Because obviously you could have called in players, obviously Sebastian Legette being the only one coming in due to, due to uh, injury to another midfielder on the club. But, you know, you could call in a Jordan Morris. You could call in uh, Christian Roldan. You could call in Paxton Palmacall. There's plenty of guys that have options for you to fill in that midfield spot. But due to people being in playoffs, that's why legit got the call up because no Galaxy, no playoffs. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, uh, to put in perspective of how new this matchup is, the U.S. has only played the Welsh national team one other time. And that was a 2-0 win back in 2003 when goals scored by Landon Donovan and Eddie Lewis and Nick Romando posted a shutout. Uh, wow. Yeah, 2003. So it's 17 years in the making. But again, like I said, this is, a, this is a new identity with a new club. And we're getting to see some fresh faces too. Uh, but my prediction for the starting 11, I think in goal, you're going to have Zach Steffen. Um, obviously not only proven in MLS, but he's uh, been dealt out on loan, but he's also obviously got the study underneath Manchester city uh, looking at Ederson, you know, definitely one of the top five goalkeepers in Premier league. Um, and then in the defense, you're going to put John Brooks, Serginio Dest, uh, Tim Ream. And I believe it or not, Sean, I think our guy Reggie Cannon is going to get the start. I'm going to say it now simply because when it comes to other right back or even left back options, I really don't like Anthony Robinson being back there. He was uh, back when um, Jurgen Klinsmann was kind of giving him trials. It wasn't going too well. He seems susceptible on the counterattack, even though he's pretty solid in the um, forward play. Someone who knows this like myself and knew who over on the Sounders. <clears throat> um, <laughs> and then over in the midfield, I think you're going to get Tyler Adams. I th obviously you're going to get Weston McKinney. Um, but then I think you're going to get Cardoso, who plays out for Internacional over uh, in the Brazilian league. Uh, getting, you know, Johnny Cardoso, or they call him Johnny Soccer, apparently, in Brazil, uh, looks good. He's getting his first international call-up. And I think for someone to help solidify that midfield a little bit more, and this is going to definitely be an attack-heavy uh, club here, attack-heavy team. Uh, so they're going to put Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic, and I think Josh Sargent's going to be up top. So... Uh, that's my predicted starting 11. And I think this matchup, especially now that Gareth Bale is out, uh, you look at the names that, you know, are being put towards the Welsh, you know, 23 or whatever they called up. Uh, this is just, it's a very defensive heavy uh, international team. So I think this is going to end up being at, I want to say like 3-1. I'm going to confidently say 3-1, the U.S. men's team will end up winning. Yeah, Josh Sargent is not able to play in this match because he is stuck with Werder Bremen right now. So he is not able to play. And Sebastian Legette, well, he doesn't have a season more because, you know, the LA Galaxy did not make the playoffs, which is still weird to say, but that is the case. Pulisic has been nursing a hamstring, so he's not going to be able to play. But I am very interested to see what the U.S. men's national team does up front. Uh, Vea most likely will be the starter. He is, he's, he spent time with PSG, currently playing in the French League right now. What I'm interested in seeing for the U.S. men's national team as well is I want to see the midfield duo of Tyler Adams and Wes McKinney. Uh, according to a projected lineup that I also saw, they have both of them playing at kind of the central defensive midfield kind of area, which is interesting because Tyler Adams is more of an attacking midfielder. So it'll be very interesting to see what Tyler Adams can do in that spot. 
And because Pulisic is out, I actually think this is going to be a lower scoring match than you think it's going to be. I'm going to pick 1-0 U.S. over Wales. I'm going to pick 1-0. I think Zach Steffen gets the shutout. I don't think Wales puts up much of a fight offensively and without Pulisic. There's, there's not going to be as much creativity with the attack, but there's still be just enough. And I think and I think the Sebastian Legette's going to score the one goal. He he has he has he has delivered when the ball has gotten to him. He's been a better goal scorer for LA Galaxy than Chicharito has this season. So I think Legette's going to find the winning goal, and it's going to be about early in the second half. So I think U.S. pulls out a one nil win over Wales. It's definitely a yeah interesting project. I totally forgot about Sargent and Pulisic because of their injuries, but. I, I still think the, the U.S. gets more than one goal. I think there's just two. You know, you mentioned Tyler Adams even playing in a defensive midfield role. We even see him switch back to uh, left back at times for Leipzig. But we know the type of balls he can put in. Even McKinney, I think this team will be more dangerous on set pieces if they get any. Uh, so I think they at least get more than one goal. But we, we both agree it's a U.S. win, to say the least. Yes. All right. Moving to the NFL. We this this will be a topic that we talk on both blinded by sports and ahead of the count because this game was just too what on earth just happened. So both so both Confucius and Johnny Cream will have their opinions on this. But Sunday Night Football was supposed to be an epic showdown between Tom Brady and Drew Brees, battle for the NFC South division lead. There's a lot of hype going into this match to say the least. Well, it was over in the first quarter as the Tampa Buccaneers on their first four possessions went three and out. The New Orleans Saints ended up winning this game 38 to three. And it was 28 nothing at halftime. It was 28 nothing at halftime. And it was at Tampa Bay. So that means that New Orleans sweeps the season series after being the Buccaneers at home in week one. Colin, what on earth was that? Uh, yeah, just a quick correction. It was, it was 31 to nothing at halftime. Yeah. 31 to nothing. Um, what even happened? Cause you know, this, this Tampa Bay team was kind of rolling for a little bit. They seemed very confident. Tom Brady seemed to, you know, obviously with a new team, he seemed to have found his stride over there in Tampa, but yikes. Uh, first off, there was no running game whatsoever. The saints allowed Eight rushing yards, a whopping eight rushing yards. Granted, there wasn't a lot of attempts, but when you have Tom Brady, who's even himself struggled, went 22 for 38, 209 yards and three interceptions, uh, you figure you're going to try and run the ball at a certain point. But no, um, the Saints only allowed eight rushing yards. They were one for nine on third down conversions. Um, and then the Bucks defense couldn't do anything either. They allowed 420 yards, and they couldn't stop either side of the ball as Alvin Kamara – um, and company almost put up 140 rushing yards. Drew Brees threw for over like 200 something passing yards. Um, and the Bucks didn't finally score until the fourth quarter. There was no scoring in the third, but they finally got their score in the fourth quarter. Um, this was, I think, a complete total meltdown by Tampa Bay, to say the least. Uh, Bruce Arians has actually been very critical of Tom Brady. Uh, which is fair, you know, when you're a six-time Super Bowl champion, you expect to hold yourself with a little bit of a higher standard. Um, this was this was an abysmal game from Tom Brady, which is weird to say because normally he's not shut down like this. Even He's obviously played 
tough teams in his past and he's obviously struggled but this is the worst loss in his career obviously he's had a long one and uh there was previously i want to say 31 points originally was his worst loss um only for them to end up winning the super bowl still that season that was back in 2003 and uh yeah here we are 17 years later um lost by 35 points and the saints are now in control of the division um and we sean you've even said yourself the saints aren't even the best team in the nfc you we talked about last week you know we thought green bay is potentially better we thought um or they're i'm sorry best in the league we talked about last week we obviously have said the chiefs we've talked um you know seahawks being better obviously we'll gather into that we've talked about green bay being better uh the saints looked real good though um sean payton's team definitely looked very confident they looked uh they wanted to get this divisional win out of the way just so they can get that control of the controller on destiny kind of thing and yeah this was I don't know what happened in Tampa Bay, but Bruce Arians is furious now with Tom Brady. There's just no answers for the, this was just a pure dominance by New Orleans. So congrats to them. Congrats to them indeed. This is the stat that sums up the game to me. Colin, do you know how many different players catch, caught a pass from Drew Brees in this game? How many did he have? 12. 12. For context, about an average amount of pass catchers in a game for an NFL team usually ranges around six or seven. That's about average, I would say. Sometimes it's about five, sometimes about eight, but 12, 12. Drew Brees spread the ball around. No player had more than five catches, and that was Michael Thomas, who, if you if you look at Michael Thomas' season, his only two games he's played this season were both against Tampa Bay. So having Michael Thomas back is huge. The Saints have low-key won five games in a row. They started one and two, and they have won five games in a row. Now, a lot of those wins were, frankly, not very impressive. They they beat the Panthers in a one-possession game at home. They had to come back and beat the L.A. Chargers, the team that honestly has had worse chokes than the Falcons this season, which is saying a lot. The, they haven't looked terribly impressive, but now the Saints have broken out. Michael Thomas has come back. The Saints look as great as they have had all season. Their defense completely shut down Tampa Bay. And the reason for this is that Tampa Bay doesn't have an identity. They don't have an established running game when it, when it matters against top teams. The Saints have had one of the best rush defenses the last four years. And when the running game is taken away, what do they have? Mike Evans on the outside? Oh, wait, against New Orleans, that doesn't work because Marshawn Lattimore – you want to hear this crazy stat? Mike Evans has been targeted six times against Marshawn Lattimore in the last three matchups against him. Zero receptions. Zero. Zero. Mike Evans is an easy guy to shut down either. No, he's not. He's big and he's fast. And Marshawn Lattimore has completely shut them down. Godwin has been in and out of the lineup with injuries. Scotty Miller is a decent slot receiver, but he's not what Adam Humphreys was several years ago. Gronkowski is great and all, but Demario Davis just took him away completely. So the Tampa Buccaneers had no identity against the Saints. Now, against lesser defenses, they have a lot of different options. But against the Saints, they had no identity whatsoever. They couldn't get anything going. That No one could get open. Brady couldn't get protection. They couldn't run the ball. They couldn't do anything right. It was a complete and utter meltdown. They, they looked completely unprepared. They looked lifeless. 
And it looked like the Saints literally had a stranglehold over them on every single aspect of the field. The Tampa Bay matches up so poorly against the Saints. And if you see another matchup like this, that's going to doom Tampa Bay. Now, here's the good news for Tampa Bay, though. I don't think there's another team in the NFC that can do this to Tampa Bay. As long as Tampa Bay can avoid New Orleans going forward, they should be more than fine. Let me break this down. Seattle's defense is atrocious, as we're about to talk about, and, they, and Seattle also has no running game. Green Bay, well, you saw what Tampa Bay did to them. Tampa, Green Bay, if they get punched in the mouth, they quit. That They have proven to do that over the last year and a half. San Francisco is injured to the, the most injured team I've literally ever seen. I don't even recognize the existence of that Thursday night game last week because of the foreigners were so injured. NFC East is nothing but garbage. The NFC and the Arizona Cardinals, their defense is not very good. They, they gave up 38 points to the Miami Dolphins. The LA Rams are turnover prone. The NFC is very weak this season, and it is highly possible. It is highly possible that the Buccaneers and Saints may be the two best teams in the NFC. And the Saints, as long as they continue to play good defense, and as long as Michael Thomas and Alvin Kamara stay healthy, I think the Saints may have put a stamp on the fact that they may be the best team in the NFC this year because Seattle has become completely one-dimensional, and Green Bay just isn't it. They, they, just, they just aren't it. And I think the Saints are a much better team since week three when the Packers beat the Saints 37-30. to and that was, you know, still a close game. The Saints look as look as elite as they have had in the last four years. But I'll just I'll just end off with this question. Saints have now proven that they're probably going to win this division if they swept Tampa Bay, and they're one of the best teams in the NFC. How are they going to lose in the playoffs this year? I cannot wait to see because the last three years in the playoffs they have lost some of the most heartbreaking ways you can possibly lose in the NFL. Let's see what year four brings. Bring it on. Oh, man, what a big question, Sean. Especially you look at the remaining schedule. They only have, if you really look, the Saints have one real tough opponent left over, and that's obviously who you and I would say is the best team in the league is the Kansas City Chiefs. That's the one the one team they have that can really put a damper on the rest of their season. But they've got the Niners, the Falcons, the Broncos, the Falcons again, the Eagles, and then the Chiefs game, the Vikings who have been – hit or miss this season depends on how good Dalvin Cook wants to play and then the Panthers. So definitely uh, the Saints could finish with a very favorable record, could finish on top of the NFC, could potentially make it back to the Super Bowl, depending. Um, but again, it depends on how they, how, how do they want to shoot themselves in the foot this time? Yes. The, the Saints might end up 13 and three, which Good luck, good, good luck convincing someone of that if you if you had told them that after they lost to the Packers in week yeah. in week three. So I'm very interested to see what the Saints do going forward. They're gonna they're gonna crush four hours, but Saints and Chiefs Super Bowl preview, perhaps. Also, Chiefs and Buccaneers. That's gonna be pretty good too. Unless, right. unless the Bucks uh okay, yeah. Say, yeah, unless they decide not to show up. Yeah, exactly. All right, Colin. So your Seahawks just lost 44 to 34 to the Bills. What happened? The Sean, I mean, I'm sure you probably at least caught some of the game, if not all of it. The defense, Ken Norton's got to go. There's no other, there's no other viable option here. Uh, historically, it was said multiple times throughout the broadcast, Seattle has had the worst 
historic defense throughout the first seven games of their season. Um, obviously, Josh Allen isn't a slouch of a quarterback by any means. He was uh, nursing a left shoulder injury for a little bit, so obviously his non-throwing arm. Um, but he did see a decrease in his production. He finally recovered from that. And you saw what a healthy Josh Allen can do. The dude's a stud. He's tall. He's 250 pounds. Um, but when you have Russ, I mean, directing your offense, there's still a chance. I mean, the fact that they only lost by 10 is a miracle. This could have been this could have been 56 to 21 for this could have been a college football game for all I care. Um, but Russell Wilson gives any team a chance, no matter who he plays for. Uh, but this defense has, has, has nothing they can do for it, except for the fact that they almost, they put like seven sacks up against Josh Allen, which is ridiculous. And yet they still lose by 10, like, which, which means secondary is the issue here, obviously. And I mean, when you've got Trey flowers, um, Quentin Dunbar hasn't been all that great. Uh, Jamal Adams is finally back and getting healthy, putting pressure on, but even still, um, Bobby Wagner can only do so much. He's not secondary. Obviously he's that middle linebacker position. Uh, the zone formation, the zone schemes aren't working anymore. I don't know what it is with about the three man, four man zone that Ken Norton loves so much that apparently seems to work. It's, it's not working. Um, they got to pressure the ball more. Obviously, yes, they got more sacks. We saw uh, the effect that the blitz was having on San Francisco. Granted that's San Francisco and not Buffalo. Again, Buffalo is a quality team. Um, yeah, the, the only, the only logical answer here is Ken Norton's got to go. The defensive coordinator for Seattle, um, Russell is still MVP in my mind. I still don't see that changing because again, they only lost by 10. Uh, if Russell Wilson's not your quarterback, you lose by way more. Um, you, you brought up them to having no rushing game. That's because, you know, your top two guys in Chris Carson and Carlos Hyde are both out injured. So you're having to rely on a, on a rookie to take over. Um, who's not a full power runner. He's definitely got more speed than Hyde and Carson do. But this is, this is now a team that is solely reliant on what can Russell Wilson do. And while, yes, that's been the same story in the past, um, he had more help when it came to Marshawn Lynch, and now he's got a fantastic receiving core. But if you can't get Russell Wilson time, if you can't even get him some defensive help, yeah, the Seahawks could end up winning their division, but at what cost? You're going to end up with more injuries. You're going to end up with a shaken Russell Wilson. You're going to get probably humiliated in playoffs eventually. Uh, yeah, defense has to get solidified. Or then we, there was a lot of predictions of this team, you know, going on a potential spiral. I won't say a spiral because, again, Russell Wilson's still MVP caliber. But this is this is not a thirteen and three team anymore. This is a potentially team that could go eleven and five, maybe even fall to ten and six. Yeah, I the Seahawks are looking a bit too similar to last season, where at the end of last season, where they didn't have a running game and they were slowing Russell Wilson. The Seahawks got very lucky as Carson Wentz got uh, got injured in the wild card round, which is the main reason why the Seahawks, despite only scoring seventeen points, were able to win that that playoff game in Philadelphia. And they got exposed in the next round. And I got a feeling that unless Seattle can start to win enough games to get a first round by, the same thing's going to happen again. Devontae Adams could feast on the secondary once again. And the Seahawks will not make it to the conference championship game. Although with a more open – last year the NFC was a bloodbath. There were so many good teams this year that really isn't. So the Seahawks are still in a decent favorable position. But – you gave up 415 yards to Josh Allen. I mean, Josh Allen's been very good this season outside of a couple games, but really? Also 31 of 38, 
and three touchdowns, no interceptions. He looked way too comfortable out there. And even though the Seahawks had good pass rush, you couldn't cover if you actually didn't get to Josh Allen. And, and Jamal Adams looked awful. There was a replay where Jamal Adams literally was covering a receiver. can't remember which one. And he was completely turned around and ran in the opposite direction of where the receiver was. Really? Really? Jamal Adams trade is not working for the Seahawks right now. Their defense is still bad, regardless if he's in the lineup or not. Remember, he was in the lineup when Cam Newton threw for almost 400 yards all the way back in week two. The Seahawks defense has been awful. They need a reboot quickly because they're wasting the prime years Russell Wilson. However, Russell Wilson is not out of the woods here. I'm sorry. You can't turn the ball over seven times in the last three games. Now, I get he's had to force it, but seven turnovers. Uh, that's that's not good. Cut down on the turnovers, Russ. Stop cooking so much because you're burning your food here. Great analogy, Sean. Fan, just applaud, applause all around. Applause all around. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, let's talk about a team that, unlike the Seahawks, is not in playoff contention. That's the Patriots. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah, the Patriots lost four games in a row coming into this week's showdown against the winless New York Jets. And when I saw that Joe Flacco was starting for the Jets, I thought, oh, no. As a Patriots fan, I know just as well as anybody that you don't ever count out Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco has been torching the Patriots for as long as I can remember. Joe Flacco beat the, the Patriots in the playoff twice and nearly beat them the other two times that he didn't. Joe Flacco could easily be 4-0 against the Patriots in the playoffs. He torches the Patriots almost every single time he plays them. It is a, it is a nightmare almost every single time Joe Flacco plays against the Patriots. And wouldn't you know it, Joe Flacco actually has a pretty good game against the Patriots defense again. And I saw this coming. It's Joe Flacco against the Patriots. This, 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 is, this is what happens every single time. However, Adam Gase is a terrible head coach. The Jets almost never had the ball in the second half. Joe Flacco decided to throw the ball in triple coverage for, in double coverage for whatever reason when the game was tied, gave the ball when, when they were up seven, gave the ball right back to the Patriots. Cam Newton converted, scored a touchdown, and then Patriots got the ball back again and then kicked the game-winning field goal. So, yay, the Patriots beat the Jets. Literally, this is exactly what I said when the Patriots kicked the game-winning field goal. We won? Cool. That, that, that was literally my reaction. I'm like, okay, you're telling me we were trailing against the Jets for the majority of the game? It took a late field goal to beat a winless team, the worst team in the league? Really? <sighs> Patriots do not have much talent at all. The two best players on the Patriots, the three best players on the Patriots right now are Jacoby Myers, Damian Harris, and JC Jackson. I'm sorry, who? (laughs) (laughs) My my thoughts are that JC Jackson has five interceptions on the season. Damian Harris has actually been a pretty solid running back. He has two 100-yard games this season. And Jacoby Myers had 12 catches for 169 yards against the Jets. He looked very solid. He's starting to develop some chemistry with Cam Newton. But, man, we got no talent. We need to rely on draft picks to get more talent. It's going to be a rough few years. I'm fine with it. I mean, I, I, what do I have to complain about? I, I, got to ex- 
I got to experience three Super Bowl championships. I didn't really get to experience the first three because I was a little bit too young. I started getting into football in 2005, which was the season after the Patriots won the three. So bad, bad timing there, but I got to experience three Super Bowl championships. What do I got to complain about? I get at least a, I get at least a, I get at least a few years to just watch the rebuild happen, and hopefully we start winning more in the future. But look, it's going to be a rebuild. At least there are some good young talent emerging. Patriots are just not good, plain and simple. Yeah, this, and I mean, obviously we saw this coming, especially you know. Uh, Tom Brady on of his, on his way out, signing a new contract out in Tampa, um, losing a few defensive pieces here, losing some receiving core um, pieces, and having Cam Newton come back, who was kind of in a backup role for a little bit, and after you know dealing with the injury things like that, um, having to kind of fire up a new scheme, especially in a Belichick type offense, which was so often able to just rely on the Brady check down pass kind of thing, where hey, if I don't have my fifteen yard option, I got my five, I got my three to five yard option in front of me. Um, because let's be honest, that, that was the option for a long time that got them Super Bowls. Um, they were able to pick apart defenses, and Cam Newton's not that same player. Obviously, you had to rely on two rushing touchdowns from him. Um, still, he's still a force, to say the least. Uh, but yeah, this is not, not the same New England Patriots team that we've come accustomed to seeing, but you know that, you know that the New York Jets are now hashtag tanking for Trevor. Uh, so <laughs> let's, uh, I guess let's see. Let's just see how bad the New York Jets can truly be. And Sean, who knows? Maybe the maybe the Patriots could end up with at least a 500 record. Who knows? That would be the worst case scenario because I want draft picks. I want I don't want mid round draft picks. I want top 10 draft picks. All right, let's uh, close this out with a team that yes, the the one team in in sports besides probably the U.S. Men's National Team that we both have a common interest as far as our favorite team. That's the Seattle Mariners. Uh, Kyle Lewis has won unanimous AL Rookie of the Year. Your quick thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, let's be honest. Out of anyone else who deserved this title, to be totally honest, uh, he was absolute stud. He was team MVP easily. Um, he needs to be, if not their franchise player. This is finally the rebuild system that we have been promised for so long from Jerry Depoto. Uh, you know, J.P. Crawford, Evan White, and uh, Kyle Lewis all given the Golden Glove. Um, this is, so this is now a core that you can finally start building around. And then obviously you got Marco Gonzalez, who was actually not pitching too terribly. Um, but Kyle Lewis, congratulations, you know, obviously didn't have a fantastic end of the season. I think he only hit for like a 147, which isn't great throughout all of September, but even still he went for, I want to say he went like 330 the entire season. He led, um, home runs for a while, especially among the team, uh, kids is kids is stuff you can't deny it. he's got a great speed in the outfield um his ability to read a play before it happens is awesome he, he can spray the ball all over he can hit for contact hit for power he can steal um and the last mariner to win the award because granted he was a rookie was back in 2001 when each hero came all the way from japan <laughs> so uh yeah obviously as a mariner fan you got to be excited about it because Maybe this is the future we were finally promised after not seeing playoffs for 19 years. <laughs> yes, 19 years. I have never seen the Mariners in the playoffs, which has been terrible. Yes, Carlos is the first Mariners player to win Rookie of the Year since Ichiro, which is why I'm a Mariners fan, because Ichiro is why was the player that really got me into baseball, and that's why I chose the Mariners my favorite team. Also, also I love the Mariners uniforms. But 
Here's the thing about Kyle Lewis winning MVP. First of all, I do have an article about Kyle Lewis for the site. I wrote it back a couple weeks into the season when he had just an absolute tear to start the season. The thing here's the thing about Kyle Lewis. He is the first part of a potential outfield core that could look like this. Kyle Lewis at center field, and then the left and right field could compose of two of the Mariners' top prospects, which which are still currently in the minors. They haven't really been called up yet to play, but Julio Rodriguez and, and Jared Kelenich, who the Mariners got from the Robinson Cano trade. So, wow, a trade actually pays off for the Mariners for once, potentially. So the, there is a outfielding core that the Mariners can build around for the next decade that could be very lethal, which is very promising. And Lewis has the slugging. Obviously, like a lot of rookies, he struggles with contact because, you know, rookies – Love to swing at pitches and love love to get as much action as possible. It's just why Evan White has one of the worst averages in all of baseball this season. But yeah, Kyle Lewis read rookies in 32 runs, 90 bases, and in a .364 on-base percentage. So Kyle Lewis was very solid this season, and I am looking forward to seeing how he develops in the future. And I'm excited to see how the Mariners outfield develops in the future. Absolutely. Got to, got to be excited about it. Yes. Yeah, something for Marisons to actually be excited about that isn't just getting a bunch of stars and hoping it works. Like getting Nelson Cruz, for example. I mean, he was good. Don't get me wrong, but it just halted a rebuild. All right. That's going to do it for episode 19 of Blinded by Sports on the Kena Clark podcast. Be sure to check out thekenaclark.com. Colin Fuchs wrote an article about how the MLS has transitioned from a retirement league to a farmer's league. So be sure to check that out. And starting next week, Colin Fuchs will have coverage on the MLS playoffs. Be, be sure to check that out. Yes. John, Johnny Crane got to do MLB and NHL playoffs. Colin is now his turn with the MLS playoffs. So be sure to look forward to that. I was your host, the Ken Clark himself, Sean Clark for Colin Fuchs. See you in the next segment with the head of the count. It is that time of the week once more, ladies and gentlemen. This is ahead of the count, episode 16. It's an even episode, so that means Johnny Crane, myself, will be hosting today, and Sean Clark, the creator and the, I guess, host of the CandaClark.com, will be my co-host. Sean, the Candy Clark himself. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. I'm still recovering from a panic attack this Saturday morning. We'll just dis- we'll discuss why I had this. But hey, it was fun to watch college football, even though it season should be canceled with all the COVID tests. But hey, it's a joy college football while we still have it. Let's get into some topics. So yes, we will be talking college football, but not first. We have to talk about something else. And before we get into it, on this day that we record, it is Veterans Day, so thank you to all the veterans out there that have served or are serving right now, and happy Remembrance Day to all the veterans that served in World War One. And speaking of Remembrance Day, let's talk Premier League. Let's talk in regard to Chelsea football. So, Premier League teams are off this week, and Chelsea, as it stands currently, they are fifth in the table. They are four, three, and one, 15 points. They are tied with Aston Villa. So, Sean, take me through how you see Chelsea operating this season so far. Do you like it? Do you hate it? What do you like? This has gone exactly as I predicted so far. 
I knew that Chelsea was going to struggle early because they just got a bunch of new transfers. Ben Chilwell, Hakeem Ziyech, Timo Werner, Thiago Silva, Kai Havertz, and most recently, Edudar Mendy. I really hope I didn't butcher that first name. But now, except for Havertz, who is still dealing with COVID, they're healthy and they're together. Ziyech had a foot problem in training camp and he has come back and he was responsible for three of four goals that Chelsea scored in their 4-1 win over Sheffield United this past weekend. Yeah, Sheffield United is at the bottom of the Premier League table, but hey, a 4-1 win is a 4-1 win. Remember, this is the same club that 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 drew 3-3 against West Bromwich Albion, which is the same club that lost to Fulham. Yes, Fulham won a match in the Premier League. It, it, it happened. Miracle, miracles happen, ladies and gentlemen. And they also beat Burnley three to nothing. So while these are two bottom tier clubs this season, Burnley is not looking too hot to start this season. They're winning matches. And they've also won their last several matches in the Champions League group stage by combined 7-0, which having Champions League success is also just as vital as Premier League success, if not more. So with these playmakers being back, Timo Werner has scored five goals in the last four matches. He is doing phenomenally well so far. He's doing what Chelsea brought him to do. So now that the core is starting to click together, and once Havertz comes back, then Chelsea will be able to explode. This is why I picked them to be second in the Premier League at the end of the Premier League season, because I just knew they were going to have a, a better second half than really any club. And that's exactly what we're seeing so far. And with Christian Pulisic uh, spending this international break nursing his hamstring injury, they're going to get even more healthy. Right. I'm 100% with you. And I know we've talked about this on previous podcasts when we've talked about Chelsea, but with all the transfer moves that they made this past transfer window, I said it before, I'll say it again. Pretty much what Chelsea was doing is what that they were doing. They were making all these moves in one transfer window that most clubs would make over two transfer windows. But of course, with the transfer ban that Chelsea had last transfer window, well, they sort of had to play catch up a bit. And so far with all the transfer moves, Frank Lampard has actually made all the moves work relatively well. So far, so good, I think. And that says a lot because when you see all these star-studded players coming in on the back line, on the midfield, and the forward, and the attacking role, you would think there'd be some chemistry issues, maybe some butting heads, maybe some arguments, maybe some fights. But so far, it looks as if they're working quite well together. And when you look at the production and the stats, it sort of backs that up. They're, they lead the Premier League in goals scored. They have 20 goals scored. They're second in passes. They're seventh in long balls. They're tied for fourth in clean sheets. Yes, Chelsea with Edward Mendy is tied for fourth in clean sheets. And the, the saying goes is that if you have a good goaltender, everything else falls in line. The back line's that much more confident. The midfield is that much more confident. And so far with Edward Mendy and the goal, I think that the back line and the midfield are actually meshing much better than originally thought. And more importantly, I think the back line and the midfield are prioritizing more defensive-oriented roles. And that goes back to the transfer moves that they made to bring in Timo Werner, to bring in Kai Havertz. With more attacking players brought in, those positions, the midfield and the back line, can prioritize defense much more. And we're seeing that. And going back to the offense, well, they're sharing the ball and everybody is building off of each other. 11 different players have scored at least one goal. 
And again, the defense has been really sound. And com- when you combine that with the fact that Christian Pulisic is not one of those 11 players that have scored a goal yet, Kai Havertz is currently battling COVID, a good Chelsea team right now is going to potentially be even better with the more health that they get moving forward. So overall, when you look at the grand picture of what Chelsea is at right now, sure, their schedule is a little weak so far. They started off the season with a relatively easy slate, so to speak. So they've had this time to really build and build that team chemistry together in these games. But so far, so good. And with all the players and all the personnel with Frank Lampard implementing what he wants to implement, it's been really good for Chelsea. And I think moving forward, as they play stronger opponents like Tottenham, like Wolverhampton, like Liverpool again, like Man City, you'll see more meshing and potentially better production than you did with Chelsea against the weaker opponents. So the upside is there. The sky is the limit for Chelsea. And if they can stay healthy, I think that's the big thing. They're going to be really good. All right, Sean, you mentioned that you had a little bit of a cardiac episode this weekend. So this is your segment. Yes, Pac-12 football is back, folks. Well, save for the games that were nicked because of COVID. But aside from that, ASU and USC did play. USC was down 27 to 14 with less than three minutes to go. And somehow, some way, USC found a win. So, Sean, take me through this game from the start to the finish. Whew! This, to say this game was nerve-wracking is an understatement. Now, let me, let me just set up this picture here. So, USC has a head coach named Clay Hilton, who is terrible. The, the teams are very undisciplined. USC has ranked in the bottom 10 in penalties the last four years under Clay Hilton. So, Clay Hilton coming this season had a bit of a short leash to say the least. If USC does not win the Pac-12 like they should because they are the most talented team, he should be gone. And playing ASU, who finished last season really well, we all remember when Jaden Daniels and Brandon Ayuk lit up the the top, the number five-ranked Oregon Ducks on Saturday night ABC, which was really a breakout party for Daniels. So USC had a bit of a tough challenge. Well, the challenge is going to be very harder when ASU muffs a punt, and then when you're on the red zone, Malapii fumbles the ball. Really? So that was that was that was basically how it started: a three and out muffed punt, and then a fumble on the goal. That's how it started. And throughout the first half and the third quarter, USC fumbled the ball two more times. And Slovis threw an interception. So USC had four turnovers on the game. Slovis was also throwing a bunch of short passes that went absolutely nowhere. On top of that, on the defensive side of the ball, ASU had 258 rushing yards as a team. Daniels had 111. And they couldn't stop anybody. Rashad White had a receiver screen that went about 50 yards for a touchdown even though that was a passing touchdown, I'm counting that as more of a run because, you know, yards after catch. So, then with uh, about three minutes to go, USC was turned 27-14, and I was disgusted. I was, I was about ready to unleash on Twitter about to call for Clay Hilton's head because this was ridiculous. You have, you're playing a mediocre at best and young ASU defense, and through 57 minutes, you have 14 points. 
that, that that shouldn't be happening. And yes, USC fumbled the ball three times. They lost all three of them. They lost three different fumbles. Marquis Step and Tyler Vaughn's all fumbled the ball on passes. You gotta be kidding me, guys. Stop fumbling the ball all the time. All right. So fast forward to the to 57 minutes into the game. And USC is faced with a fourth and 15. Amon Ross St. Brown, who had over 100 yards receiving, tipped the ball up in the air. And true and, and registered freshman wide receiver, Brew McCoy, who committed to USC, transferred to Texas, and then transferred back and had to sit out a year due to some health issues, caught the touchdown. All right, 27 to 21. All right. All right, defense needs to stop, although they haven't been able to get a single stop on ASU rushing all game. Oh, wait a minute. College football has a running start on onside kicks. Okay. Maybe USC has a chance here. Oh, wait, they got it. <laughs> and they didn't need an Atlanta Falcons ineptitude against the Dallas Cowboys to get it. Brew McCoy had a great jump on the, on the kickoff, was able to deflect the ball loose, and he recovered the onside kick in a mad scramble. USC got the ball back, but here's the thing. USC was faced with another fourth down, this time a fourth and nine, at the ASU 21-yard line. To say I was nervous on this play is an all-time understatement. As, as I watched with all, the, with all the worry in the world on my shoulders, Slovis stepped back, threw it to Drake London, who had been the leading receiver for USC during the game, in double coverage, and I thought to myself, oh, no, that's, he's forcing it. This isn't good. But no, Drake London makes the catch as Slovis throws a perfect pass. London makes a catch. Gus Johnson, who is calling this game, went crazy. I, I, I almost yelled my throat out of my mouth. And USC took the lead. But guess what? There was still over, there was still over a minute to go. I'm like, oh, no, we may have scored a little too quickly here. I mean, I'm glad we scored. But, but USC, because their secondary was very solid, Stopped the issues drive around midfield. Jaden Daniels could not get a passing game going outside of that 155-yard touchdown. And it showed on the final drive as USC held the issue. And, and USC came away with a 28-27 win. Whew! It was an exhausting win, to say the least. Slovis really got going late. The... The special teams did a thing. They, they did a really, really great thing. Um, USC had some solid moments on defense, but 258 rushing yards for ASU is not going to get it done. Got to improve the run defense. Got to stop fumbling the ball. But if they can improve from this, then they should be good going forward. They play at U of A this Saturday. I, I feel good about that, considering ASU's been – sorry, U of A has been struggling the last few years. So hopefully it would be nice to see USC hang 60 on them. That is possible. But overall, I'm happy with this win. Clay Helton saved his job for now. Let's see how they do going forward, if they're able to play going forward, that is. What a sloppy game. That's really what I can boil it down to. Such a sloppy game, but almost an expected game, considering the fact that this was their first game for a long time, when you consider the delay that COVID brought to the Pac-12 season. But when you look at what USC brings to the table with Keaton Slovis and what ASU brings to the table with Jaden Daniels, 
like we talked about on the previous podcast on these two quarterbacks play styles we pretty much saw that during this game and when you look at Keon Slovis he's a pure pocket passer at the end of the day that's what he is and what I really like from him is that yes he had some underthrown balls but when you consider the fact that COVID delayed their season and when you add that to the fact that well he had an arm injury in the bowl game last season to his throwing arm and the fact that you know yes he had some underthrown balls but the arm strength to me was there the deep ball was there and I think moving forward as the season progresses you're going to see that deep ball just further develop more and more and more and from a true freshman going into his true sophomore season the sky's the limit for him. You know, we've talked about freshman quarterbacks in the past with Jaden Daniels, Sam Howell, and company. But Keon Slovis, to me, he is what makes USC what should be, what should make USC the Pac-12 favorite because he is such a solidified, deep pocket passing quarterback. And I think that pure skill set should take USC relatively far. And this is the question I'm going to ask you, Sean. It is a shortened season. COVID sort of makes the season maybe not an asterisk, so to speak, but it definitely puts this season in a class of its own. Let's say that USC does really well. Does this mean that Clay Helton's job will be safe or shortened season? Do you think that Clay Helton is still going to be on the hot seat? So, for example, let's say USC does really well. Is Clay Helton safe? Or if USC does not do well, is Clay Helton on the hot seat? Your thoughts? When you look at USC's schedule, they play the Pac-12 South, and then they play Washington State. They don't play Oregon. They don't play the the nemesis of USC known as the Stanford Cardinal. Thank God. So USC should be able to win every game. Utah is solid, but they they did lose Tyler Huntley and Zach Moss, who was their duo the last several seasons. So USC should go undefeated in their six games. They already beat ASU, who in my opinion was the toughest game. ASU was the one game when I looked at the schedule, I'm like, okay, that is the toughest one. So if USC loses any of their six games, he should be fired. I'm just going to put it like that. I'm sorry. U of A has been really struggling the last couple seasons. Washington State lost Anthony Gordon in as we know, they're very one-dimensional. Well, they do they do have an improved running game, but still, they should be able to beat Washington State, who lost their head coach, Mike Leach, who has not been doing very well at Mississippi State unless he plays LSU. Uh, Colorado should win that game, plain and simple. UCLA should win that game again, plain and simple. If USC does not win out, Clay Helton should be fired. You know, if USC goes undefeated, and let's say in the Pac-12 championship game, you play Oregon, which is most likely what it's going to be, then that's where really his his job will, will be on the line. Because Oregon, you know, Penny Sewell isn't playing. Justin Herbert is gone. So you look at the Pac-12 and USC should win this conference. And while Oregon maybe is the is the best competition, then maybe the Washington Huskies, who USC also is implying, I think that USC should have no reason to not win this Pac-12. The Pac-12 is as weak as it's ever been. It's also been delayed. There's also less games. 
So, so Clay Hilton basically needs to win the, the, this conference title, either win the conference title with one loss or go undefeated into the back title game and have a, maybe a very close loss to Oregon. If you do those two things, maybe you can save his job, but the best thing he can do is just win every game and they can do that. So I think that it, it determines on, on how, on how many games they win going forward and how they do in the Pac-12 championship game. But you can't can't lose more than one game and not come away with the Pac-12 title. That 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 that's a it's a done deal if he doesn't win this conference title. Yeah, I definitely agree to an extent. I think that this is a huge year for Clay Helton, COVID season or not. I think that this season for the Pac-12 should go into USC's favor quite handily. I think, and if Clay Helton does not take advantage of that with his team, then I think there is a underlying problem. Now, with that said, if USC, let's say hypothetically USC does win all their games and then they say, let's say they lose in the Pac-12 championship to Oregon, they lose in any of their bowl game. I think Clay Helton, to me, because of the asterisk kind of season that this is, I think he does get a little more leeway than I think he would if it was during a regular college football season. Well, with that said, if he does everything he does and he loses in the bowl game, I think he goes into next season feeling quite well about being the USC head coach. But on the flip side of the coin, if he does not do well in the shortened season, let's say he goes three and three, four and two, and he gets blown out in a, in a bowl game, then I think there is a problem that might need to be addressed quite soon. So I think that will be a definitely a thing to keep an eye on. I think another thing to keep an eye on for pretty much any team, including the Pac-12, I think as – potentially with all the games being postponed and canceled and whatnot due to COVID practically every week now, I think how coaches adapt on the fly with any potential outbreak on the team, I think that'll be key as well. And if any coaches are able to coach without certain personnel, like some teams are doing already, I think that will also put those coaches on a better pedestal than other coaches that are not able to manage and coach with the lack of personnel. So I'm not saying that USC is going to go into a COVID outbreak or anything, but I think that is a factor that could also play into Clay Helton's fans into Clay Helton's hands if something like that happens and he is able to coach it around it quite well. Moving on to segment three, we had a quite a good game over the weekend. Now, yes, Trevor Lawrence did not play, but he was on the sideline. Clemson, Notre Dame. 47 to 40 win for the Fighting Irish. And to me, I think this has to solidify them as a college football playoff favorite at this point. This was their quote unquote resume win that they have notoriously lacked over the past few seasons. That's been Notre Dame's knock. So, Sean, take me through this game 47 to 40 without Trevor Lawrence. How should Notre Dame feel moving forward? And how should Clemson feel moving forward? Despite the fact that, yes, they didn't have Trevor Lawrence in this game, but DJ Uyangalale looked pretty good. Your thoughts? Ah, a college football classic. That's what we all got to witness as Clemson battle Notre Dame. So, to answer the two questions, how, how does Notre Dame feel and how is Clemson moving forward? Well, let's we'll start Notre Dame. Notre Dame gained 518 total yards. Their offense came alive. Ian Book was very good on the air and on the ground. They were, they were able to rush the ball really effectively, and they scored when they had to. They scored two touchdowns in double overtime, and just 
and they were able to send the game into overtime, even though Clemson took the lead on them in the fourth quarter. They were efficient. They were explosive. And they made the plays that they needed to when they needed to. And that is not something we have said about Notre Dame in the past. The last time Clemson played Notre Dame was in the 2018 Cotton Bowl in the, in the semifinals of the college football playoff. And Trevor Lawrence, Justin Ross, and Travis Etienne led Notre, excuse me, Clemson to a 30-3 win over the Fighting Irish in a game that wasn't even close. Ian Book was the quarterback of Notre Dame in that game. Two years later, he is all grown up, so to speak, and he is much more efficient, and there is he is not as relied upon to get it done as he has been in the past. Ian Book has had, had to do everything last season, which is why at times Notre Dame struggled. And when you, and when you look at the rushing, how about Kyron Williams? 23 carries, 140 yards of touchdown. He was fantastic on the ground, and he also made some huge plays. So Notre Dame, they got the win that they needed. This was the, this was the best win Notre Dame has had since 2012 when they won at Oklahoma on Saturday Night ABC to, to help pave their way to a national championship appearance. While they got their doors blown off in that national championship game, they, they still proved their way with a lot of legit wins. And Notre Dame going forward, this is their schedule. Boston College, they're decent. They're five and three. They did, they did lead Clemson two weeks ago. North Carolina, oh boy, Sam, Sam, that's not going to be easy with Sam Howell, uh, Johnny's favorite quarterback. Uh, Syracuse, who is one and seven. And Wake Forest, who is a mediocre four and two. So Notre Dame, if they just beat North Carolina, they're in the playoff. Although, here's the caveat to that. The ACC changed their format this season because of COVID. That means the top two teams in the ACC will face off. Oh, wait a minute. The top two teams in the ACC, so Notre Dame is in the ACC. Who's the other top team in the ACC? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, Clemson. So we, they might play each other again. And here's the thing. Clemson took them to overtime with their backup quarterback. Trevor Lawrence will most likely be back for that. So very interesting. Trans now we use that to transition to Clemson. Uh, if I'm Clemson, I'm still feeling really good. D DJ Uyagagale went 29 of 44, 439 yards. Two touchdowns, zero interceptions. He was sensational. I, I tell you what, if he was on any other college team besides maybe USC, North Carolina, Alabama, and a couple other teams, he would be the starting quarterback everywhere. He is a phenomenal talent. He, he has speed. He has accuracy. He needs to lower the elevation on some of his passes. He he, he threw over the head of a lot of receivers. So he needs to not put his, not put as much on it. Just lower your passes a little bit and he'll be more than golden. And I mentioned that Clemson had Trevor Lawrence back. Trevor Lawrence is even better, which is absolutely terrifying. And as you know, Trevor Lawrence is the best quarterback prospect in the NFL since Andrew Luck back in 2012. 
Here's the concerning thing about Clemson, though, and this is something I don't know why not many people are talking about this. Do we not realize how awful Travis Etienne was against Notre Dame? Like, is no one concerned about this? He had 85 total yards. That's it. 85 total yards. He also dropped a toss, which landed right into the hands of Notre Dame defense, and it was returned for a touchdown, which put Clemson in a double-digit hole. ETM looked slow. He had 28 rushing yards on 18 carries. Like, ETM is their best playmaker. You're telling me that he gained 85 total yards and only rushed for 28 yards and had a costly fumble? Again, why is no one talking about this? This is extremely concerning. I went back and watched the highlights of Clemson's win over Ohio State in the Fiesta Bowl last year in the college football playoff semifinal. That was a legendary match. And do you know why Clemson won? Literally, Travis Etienne carried it. Yes, Trevor Lawrence had some solid plays. But who who scored who scored the first touchdown for Clemson? Who scored the game-winning touchdown? Oh, wait, it was Travis Etienne. So Etienne needs to step it up, or Clemson is going to lo- possibly lose to Notre Dame again. This time with Trevor Lawrence. And there's not going to be an excuse this time. Get it done, Travis. I think arguably, should these two teams play again in a potential ACC championship, I think that is the storyline more so than Trevor Lawrence coming back. When you look at Travis Etienne in the Cotton Bowl against Notre Dame, 14 attempts, 109 yards, a 7.8 average, one touchdown. Pretty good, I'd say. Well, when you look at the rushing totals in this game, as you briefly mentioned, 28 yards, only one touchdown a 1.6 average. That's not going to get it done. So the question is, his sophomore campaign against Notre Dame, not that good. His first campaign, really good. You fool me once, you can fool me twice, but what do you do on the third try? Third time's the charm, right? Well, I think that's going to be the key should these two teams play again because at the end of the day, the running game is going to decide this game. Yes, Trevor Lawrence is going to make some plays should he play. Even if he doesn't play, Uyango will make plays. Sure, Ian Book can run the ball. He can pass the ball. I think he's a decent quarterback for what he is. We know what the quarterbacks are going to do. When you give them the ball, they're going to perform. So the question is for either opposing defense is how we keep the ball out of his hands. And to do that on offense is to control the clock. And if you're going to control the clock, you have to have a great running game. Travis Etienne in this game was not good on the rushing side of the ball. On the flip side of the coin, Kyron Williams for the Fighting Irish, 23 attempts, 140 yards, 6.1 rushing yards on average per attempt. That will get it done. That will control the clock, and that will keep the ball out of either quarterback that Clemson wants to throw at them in any potential game moving forward. So I think should these two teams play again, that's going to be key to me. Can you control the clock? Can you maintain the run game? And if you can do that, do some play action with the quarterback, that team's going to win the game. And that team is going to go to the playoff. The question I'm going to have you to finish the segment off, this is the question I've had. This is the gripe I've had with college football teams in this particular area. What's the excuse for Notre Dame now? They're an independent. COVID put them in the ACC this year. They're playing an AC schedule in a COVID season, but moving forward for next year and so on and so forth. Now, hold on. Let me backtrack a bit. 
I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure about what the process is for a team to go into a conference full time. But whatever the process is, I think Notre Dame has no excuse now. I think they should be in a conference. Even though Clemson was without Trevor Lawrence, I think that this win should at least make Notre Dame feel good about themselves playing an ACC schedule. I think how they perform against North Carolina will be another good test. But what's the excuse for Notre Dame now, Sean? They Get rid of the independent thing. Your thought? Yes, I don't like independent. This also goes to BYU. Stop being independent. Just rejoin the Mountain West. Or... You know, you, you could you could look at other options like, hey, uh, Big Twelve. Uh, you should add them and another team to make it actually the Big Twelve instead of the big instead of ten teams in the Big Twelve. That's just a thought. But yeah, Notre Dame should stick in the should stick to the ACC. Because think about this: Notre Dame would play eight conference opponents. Okay, cool. Here's what you do: you play USC out of conference. Because I'm sorry, as a USC fan, I, Notre Dame cannot be off my schedule every year. This year, that's fine, but no, no, no. I need, I need to play Notre Dame. Play Michigan, re, have that rivalry happen every single year again, and then choose your two cupcakes like everyone else does. Notre, there's no reason why the why Notre Dame should not be in the ACC. Just give them the ACC that way, and and put them in the coastal. That way, Notre Dame can play Clemson in the ACC title game every single year. And it would be, and we would get classics like we saw this past weekend. So just put them in the ACC, BYU, get, just, just, just go to, just go to the big 12. Just put here. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Put, put, B, put BYU in the big 12 and move Cincinnati from the American to the big 12. Boom. There's 12 teams. There you go. Simple as that. I agree with you on the Notre Dame thing. There's no excuse anymore. Look, yes, keep the USC thing. Keep Michigan rivalry. Play Navy again. I don't care. Just do something. Do anything to get in the ACC. Because at that point, you sh- you're going to help your cause out. Because what's been Notre Dame's knock before this win? I already mentioned it. I'm going to mention it again. What is their quality win? Oh, it's like I'm going back to the radio segment from last semester again. What's their quality win? Their schedule has always always been seen as notoriously weak. If you get in the ACC, you're guaranteed to play either Clemson, North Carolina, Virginia Tech's usually pretty solid too. Those are good opponents. Those are solid opponents. Those are college football playoff potential caliber resume wins right there. And if you can do that, I think that that really quells any notion of, oh, they don't play anybody. They shouldn't be in the college football playoff. I think that this could really help Notre Dame's case moving forward in any future college football playoffs like this win did for them right now for this potential playoff. So I don't think there's an excuse for Notre Dame anymore. I don't think there's going to be an excuse for BYU either. Just get rid of the independence. Find a conference. That's how it should be. All right, let's move on to the final segment. I was looking forward to this Monday night matchup. I'm not going to lie. I've been thinking that the Monday night matchups, the Thursday night matchups had been – as a whole, relatively underwhelming. But the New Orleans Saints and Tampa Bay Buccaneers game, I looked at that game, I'm like, this is going to be a pretty solid game, I think. A back-and-forth game, two veterans, Drew Brees and Tom Brady, going out potentially for the last time. be a good game, right? Wrong. They did not look good at all. What was the final score of that game? 38-3? to 
I don't remember because I turned the game off. It was that bad. So, Sean, this game, is Drew Brees back? Is, is the Drew Brees back? Is this just a blink of the eye for Tom Brady? Will he be back to normal? What? I don't know what to think of this game. Your thoughts? For clarification, it was a Sunday night football game. Oh, sorry about that. You see, it was so bad, I forgot that it was a day before the Monday night game. Oh, yeah, wait. The Monday night game was the Patriots and the Jets. Another great classic right there. So, my bad, folks. Uh, yes, that was that was a terrible game, and I'm a Patriots fan saying that. Anyways, so I, I, I talked about this on, on the previous segment, uh, Blinded by Sports, but I will I, I will reiterate uh, some of it. Um, so you realize that Drew Brees threw, threw the ball to 12 different receivers. 12! Having Michael Thomas back really allowed the Saints to spread the ball around. Defensively, they were extremely gusted. See, I hate soft zone defense. That is one of my pet peeves. Stop playing soft zone defense. If you're playing a good quarterback, you can take it apart every single time. How many times do I have to say this? Dallas Cowboys are the prime example of this. Stop playing soft zone defense. The Saints were not playing soft zone defense. They were playing aggressive man-to-man defense. Mike Evans against Marshawn Lattimore. Third game in a row, held without a catch on two targets each game, just complete and utter domination by Marshawn Lattimore. Uh, Saints got a lot of pressure. Uh, Saints took away Rob Gronkowski, who had been on a tear before this game. On the other side of the ball, uh, but Drew Brees couldn't miss on his passes. He was slinging it to, like I said, 12 different receivers. Alvin Kamara had some reduction in the backfield. To put it simply, Tampa Bay was unprepared for this game. They were outmatched in every phase of the game. They lacked an identity against the Saints. They didn't know what to do. They ran the ball five times, and one of them was a kneel. That 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 that's bad. That's 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 really really bad. So to put it simply, New Orleans, they might be the new NFC favorites because if you look at Seattle, they have no defense. They also have no running game. The Packers, well, you saw what Tampa Bay did to them. Also, the Saints are a way better team. Then when the Packers beat the Saints week three. And do I have to discuss the NFC East? No, I don't. So the Saints are honestly rising up as the new favorites in the NFC because of how well they match up against Tampa Bay, who is the other best team in the NFC. So the NFC, last year the NFC was a bloodbath. They had the 49ers, you had the Saints, you had, you had the, uh, the the Packers. Okay. Then you had the Vikings. You had a lot of good teams in the NFC last year. Also you had the Seahawks. This year, the NFC is not very good. The AFC is by far the better conference this year. And I think that the Saints may actually have a good chance to maybe overcome their demons. But like I said, winded by sports, I'll say it here. How are the Saints going to lose in the playoffs this time? I'm glad you brought that up about the AFC versus the NFC. because That's the main talking point I'm going to talk about for this segment. In the AFC, there's identity. I know what the Chiefs are going to do. Even if they lose the game, I know they're going to throw the ball 25-plus times because they have Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. They're going to score points. They're going to throw the ball. That's their identity. The Pittsburgh Steelers, why are they 8-0? They're aggressive defense. They might lose the game, but I know they're going to pick up a fumble or two, and they're going to try to get a pick six or two as well. That's their identity. Josh Allen. 
huge raw arm strength of an arm. I know even if the Bills lose, he's going to try to utilize that strong arm down the field to find Stephon Diggs. I know that because all three of those teams have a concrete identity. Now, when you look at this from the NFC perspective, I don't find any identity. Sure, Russell Wilson's really good with the Seahawks, but their identity is kind of thwarted by the fact that their defense is a little porous, to put it lightly. The Green Bay Packers. I know Aaron Rodgers is their franchise quarterback, but aside from Devontae Adams, what's their wide receiver too? What's that other wide receiver that can get the coverage off of Adams? Their identity is thwarted because of that. The Philadelphia Eagles. Do I need to mention their identity problem? I don't think so. The New Orleans Saints. Yes, they won this game, but before this game, Drew Brees is really subpar, really inconsistent. That thwarts their identity. And then, of course, there is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady before this year was never swept by the same opponent like in Drew Brees' caliber. That thwarts their identity because now that identity problem comes with the fact of, oh, is there a chemistry issue between all these weapons and Tom Brady? Is the age catching up to Tom Brady? Is Antonio Brown causing a chemistry problem already? That hurts their identity. And that's the problem with the NFC, and that's why the AFC is so much stronger this year. I know what the AFC brings me. I know what those teams are going to bring me. I know what they're going to do, and I know they're going to do that very well. The NFC, even if the teams do what they're really good at, their identity is hurt by the fact that the other part of their team really hurts their potential identity. The defense overrides what the offense can do. The chemistry overrides what the overall team can do. And that's the problem I saw with this game. Going into this game, I thought Tampa Bay was going to win this game. I thought that Tom Brady with another weapon and Antonio Brown, they'd be able to spread the ball out. But from start to finish, like you mentioned with the man-to-man defense that the Saints had, they couldn't find that identity. They couldn't find that chemistry. They couldn't find the points. They couldn't find the end zone. So moving forward, what NFC team is going to grab the bull by the horns and say, you know what? This is my identity. This is the NFC. I know I can take this division, this conference, and I'm going to run with it. What team is it going to be? Because so far, even with the Saints winning, I don't know if there's a legitimate team that's going to grab the bull by the horns and run with it. Sure, the Saints might be that team, but I need to see some more games. How does Tampa Bay improve moving forward? How does Green Bay improve? How does Seattle improve? I think that's going to be the key storyline for the NFC as a whole. It's not going to be one particular team or one particular player. It's going to be the entire conference as a whole. And I'm going to leave it at that. That is going to conclude episode 16 of Ahead of the Count. Sean Clark, thank you for joining me as always. I was your host, Johnny Crane. To all the veterans out there, once more, thank you for your service. Thank you for serving. Thank you for who are serving right now. Stay safe, everybody, and we will see you next week. Have a good one, folks.